Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Greg Paulson, who is currently Director of Application Engineering at Zometry. That's X-O-M-E-T-R-Y, Zometry, but also has a very interesting background before his current role, which we will get into. Uh, Greg has been involved with 3D printing in particular for many years and frequently speaks as an expert on the topic. He he joined Zometry just a year after it was founded and has been a key member in building the company into the business it is today. So, Greg, with that, welcome to the show. That's flattering. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> All right. So so we're going to get into, before we dive into Zometry, we're going to talk a little bit about your background. Mm-hmm. And it is... I'll, I'll use, uh, eclectic, would that be an accurate word to use to describe your background, eclectic? Um, I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I am very happy to be an expert generalist, yeah. Okay, all right. So I, I, I'm going to just read through a few things that I learned about your background and, and try not to smile too much as I do this. Uh, and, and then I'm going to ask you a question about it, and it's going to be, a long question for me to get there. So feel free to take your time as as you answer as well. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, you have degrees in hospitality and tourism, integrated science and technology, and a minor in Chinese business studies, which if I stopped there, that would be interesting enough as it is. <laughs> but, but wait, there's more. <laughs> okay. So one of your first jobs was as a sales manager at a winery and vineyard. Uh, after the winery, you went back to university, if I've, I have my timeline correct, first as a research analyst where you reviewed declassified intelligence reports to analyze U.S. intelligence failures. Wow. And then as a graduate assistant where you designed and created prototypes for various grants predominantly within the, the 3D printing space. Uh, and then you went back to yet another vineyard as a wine educator, managing staff and special events. Okay, so talk about eclectic. Help me understand what what is going on here. This is craziness. So a lot of this is happening in parallel, right? So um, think about this. I, I had a cool college job where I worked at wineries. Is is uh, it's really good there, and uh, it's helped me. I it has honestly helped me throughout my entire career uh, because I think anybody who has experience in a service industry, regardless of your career, it makes you a better communicator, usually more patient. And you're dealing with so many different people and different personalities. Like I, I, I was a guy that did the wine tasting. So you go up to the winery and you go in a, and uh, you want to try like, you know, the eight wines, I'd be the person talking to you about that. And you learn to kind of read, uh, you know, read the room, understand where they're going, uh, look, work on their pace. And it has significantly helped, uh, you know, uh, my career side, especially working for uh, many businesses and many business opportunities that have been, really been in that initial startup stage where no matter what role you are, you're a salesperson. Like, you know, you, you've, cause you're not a business if you can't sell the product. And, uh, and so I'll say, you know, I really enjoy that. Uh, I still have, a, you know, upstairs, I have Pollock wines in my uh, cabinet. I go back there, you know, several times a year to restock. Uh, so, it's a it's part of my life, but that was my weekend. So that was twenty hours every weekend uh, f- uh, for about four years or so uh, between college and grad school. Um, twenty hours every weekend, so like yeah, ten hours a day, give or take. Uh, yeah, it was. That is a it busy was, weekend. Yeah, it was, uh, um, but it was a 
uh, it, it's a it's a fun job, right? You know, it's a, it's one of those jobs where when you go home, you're not taking it home with you. You know, it's a uh, so you could go and study your butt off at school and and then have this, and it's completely departed mentally. Uh, even if it sounds like a lot, it's it's uh, it's something that you could just compartmentalize and have you know have that, and you get some income for uh, you know while you're at school. Uh, but yeah, I I did study um, undergraduate business. And uh, I even in that, I mean, it, I'm sure if uh, you guys been in college and like and started off saying, "Hey, I know exactly what I want to do," but even that, I started off in various different disciplines, and and I ended up uh, really enjoying um, business. And uh, so, uh, James Madison University has a great uh, BBA program there, and they have a very integrated. Uh, um, program where you try different disciplines and, you know, sales are like from the marketing side, from the finance side, uh, from management side. And I ended up really liking these professors. They just all happened to uh, teach at the HTM program. Uh, so that's hospitality tours of management. So I started taking their classes and uh, the first 60 credits of this undergraduate, by the way, are just business classes. And then like you um, then you have your focus, which is the, which is the subject, whether it's like I said, whether it's finance or whatever it is going to be. And I ended up taking these uh, hospitality tourism classes, uh, um, and uh, and that's my uh, that was my undergrad. And I um, I also uh, really enjoyed Chinese business. I did a study abroad and spent three months in uh, in China and uh, worked on a Chinese business study. Uh, minor there uh and that's fascinating like that... i said i i like stuff you know i'm, I'm <laughs> Clearly. I, my, my motto is constantly interested so like uh, you know like the person is like ooh, shiny object i mean that's me and i just really enjoy it yeah i, I love it i love it what, what were you like as a kid was it the same where you were just bouncing back and forth from one hobby to the next to the next to the next uh somewhat yeah i i think um I'm really, you know, I've, I'm just always been very interested in things how and how things work. Um, so, uh, regardless of the task at hand, I usually am trying to think about the mechanisms that make it happen, and uh, and so that's been, you know, big motivation for me. But I, yeah, I, um, as a kid, I was, you know, very interested. I was actually a scout. I'm an Eagle Scout, uh, so uh, I I was uh, involved with that. Did a lot of camping, hiking, outdoors activities. Um, and I will also say this, what's really interesting is we're going to go into this. I'm in a highly technical engineering field now, uh, but I was introduced to, um, drafting and design and engineering in my junior and senior year of high school. Um, so that was around, uh, 2000, 2002 area, uh, era. And, I learned um, we there was a class where you couldn't you couldn't touch the computer until you did basic drafting right so like your eighth inch tall lettering <laughs> you're you're on the angled desk and um, and your you know your rulers are out and and so we we uh, we de- had that for for coursework and then we started to learn um, at that time that was uh, Autodesk mechanical desktop which was a bee's knees because it was one of the first ones that you could actually do extrude, extrude <laughs> on. Hold, hold on. Did you just say the bee's knees? <laughs> Boy, howdy, I did. Yeah. Oh, oh man, I, I love it. Yeah. But, okay. but it, was, it was really uh, – it, um, it was one of the first CAD programs because Inventor wasn't out yet. Um, it, it was the first CAD program that um, wasn't just like 2D, uh, like AutoCAD where you're, you're doing your 2D lines. Although most of it, I, I could still basically, at that time, I could basically draw an entire drawing with just text commands. 
like at five over, you know, 30 degrees or something and just tell the line to keep on going. But uh, the, I did, uh, I was in technology student association. I actually did like CAD competitions with that. Uh, And I did that for my, again, my junior and senior year and was really interested. In fact, I actually won uh, as one of these uh, CAD competitions in a national competition. I was, I came in second place Wow! and uh, they, uh, um, and their award, because it was down in Richmond, which was where Autodesk was, was like the first, you know, a full copy of, uh, Autote- or, um, of Autodesk Inventor. And I got that. And then, and then I went to college and started studying like, yeah, biology, chemistry, and uh, business ultimately. And I didn't touch <laughs> CAD programming until I went into grad school um, uh, where I happened to, I was working on integrated in science and technology. And, uh, and I was very interested in this big open bu- uh, building down in uh, JMU. Like there's this, uh, this is a center called ISAT, which is Integrated Science Technology. And you kind of look down in this building. And I saw like every now and then I saw like somebody in the back kind of sifting through piles of white powder, you know, and I'm like, what the heck are they doing? And uh, as I was getting a graduate assistantship there, um, I was helping out and I was down there and I saw somebody on SOLIDWORKS trying to design something. And again, I hadn't touched CAD in, you know, over four years at this point. And I was like, can I try? Like, I'm like, I bet I could get that done in 20, in like 20 minutes. And I, I went (laughs) and, uh, and I did this. It was a, I remember it's very clearly because it was a cooler seat for like, if you go to like a baseball game, that would you'd sit down on top uh, on top of, and it would hold like liquid inside to cool, and it had little cubby holes to like throw a six pack inside. So it was like seat plus six pack holder plus cooler, uh, and so we you know did a very quick mock up of that so uh, um, we could do that. And I started I started actually transferring my assistantship actually down to that that building to the product realization lab where I learned selective laser sintering, which has been like one of my go to additive manufacturing processes. So that was again, uh, around uh, between 07 and 09, but that was where it really, when I really moved into that additive and um, engineering manufacturing era is when I started that assistantship there and just kind of snowballed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's starting to come together. That That is yeah. just all uh, uh, the cat's meow there. See, I can, I can throw out these terms there also. Go. There we go. Yeah. Um, tell me about China. What, what was business like in China? How did it differ from business here in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, it's, it's very interesting. So um, Chinese business, one of the things you have to learn is that there's, and this is, this is like, this is something where you talk about kind of rules are, are like rule-based versus relationship-based um uh how do i say it's business uh the in you know here if you look at a stack of resumes you're you're going to be looking at the attributes of the application the you know how the person's qualified for that for the work uh, etc etc um when we look at a resume and it says cousin or close family friend it may not have as much weight as it may have in some of these uh, relationship-based businesses. So um, having a good relationship, you know, and, and pre-existing trust is very, very important. I was, this is 2006 when we were, you know, when we were taking Chinese, uh, Chinese business and 
uh, and we were learning a lot about that and like this phrase guanxi, right? This, this like building my, building your relationship with people and like, you know, it's, it's almost like a level, like your level of guanxi is relationship, uh, um, with your, with your business partners. And, and so, uh, it was very, you know, very enlightening. And, uh, honestly, I really enjoyed, uh, the time that I had, uh, over there traveling in, in China. Um, but this is a great experience and uh, like, a, a, I think a very relevant minor to add on, you know, zometry, like, fi- uh, you know, fast forward now we've, we've gone from a domestic organization where we do on demand manufacturing, uh, with all these different technologies and we are actually, uh, now, uh, international. So we have a European branch and then we have uh, awesome manufacturing in, uh, in East Asia. And so it's, we're, we are truly becoming a global organization, and I think it does help to have that worldview because not business in different areas is different, and that's okay. And it's it's understanding how to talk, how to market, and how to have those relationships with your different manufacturers because they they they're not all the same. Like if you try to treat everyone the same, you're not going to have a very good globalized mindset on how you're gonna how you're gonna grow expand. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I'm sure it gave you a broadened perspective in in just how to treat people or deal with people um, abroad. It's interesting that you talk about the relationship aspect. Um, I I think clearly relationship matters here in the U.S. as well, right? People say it's it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, Maybe the difference is it's not really advertised here in the U.S. Like you wouldn't put down, oh, my cousin is the CEO on your resume, right? Like that would feel inappropriate. Um, and I don't know if you'd put that on your resume in China either. But it sounds like it's just it's more accepted maybe or or, or more open. The fact that relationships really matter, whereas here in the U.S., you know, people are going to throw out nepotism if, if you start dropping names like that. Yeah, I, I think there's a, it's a, like I said, it's we're more the same than we are different. Like, sure. so you're, you're yeah. right. Like same, same things are happening here in the U S uh, um, but it's, it's, not, it's just not as advertised. Um, and, and some of that has to do with trust. It's also like, there's uh, unfortunately like, you know, uh, and I think a lot of this has, has matured and evolved, but there's still, you know, there's still scamming and other things. So it's, you know, that that person that's closer to you, is less likely to do that to you. And so I think that's also a large portion of that relationship-based um, a business is building trust and rapport, like building trust through rapport uh, versus trust through cred- credentials, like what you say. Like, yeah. are, like, you know, does your resume say you do this? Like if it says you program in this language, I really expect you that on day one, you're going to be able to program in that language, you know, and that's, uh, um, I think that's a, that's that's a big portion of it too. So it's it's all you know big system stuff. Uh, like you know how, but uh, I will say as we globalize, a lot of that has changed. You know, uh, there's there's companies that have adopted uh, Western pattern practices. I hate to say Western practices, but because their business is Western business, and and you're you're seeing almost like a seamless integration. And uh, I've had some really really good relationships uh, um, and great experiences. You know, especially with some of our manufacturers in China um, because. It's not just dealing with relationships; it's also dealing with a twelve-hour time difference, uh, you know, just for communication. So, uh, it's I, I think uh, the world's a lot smaller than we think it is now. 
I want to go back to a, a completely different comment you made earlier. This is when you were uh, working at the vineyard and you mentioned that you learned how to read a room, you know, uh, identify uh, the people and maybe how to interact with them. Communication is such a, a hugely important part of engineering as it is uh, just life or business in general. Uh, how can you share, uh, if you can think of maybe a specific uh, a story or an experience or two that you had at the vineyard where learning how to read the room, learning how to interact with people has helped you uh, as uh, as a director of engineering or just in your engineering role in general. Every time I pick up the phone as a, uh, you know, as an application engineer, uh, my, my experience on that, yeah, you know, in the tasting room has, has come forward for sure. I, you know, people come in for different reasons. Uh, so like when you're, um, I, I hate, you know, bringing it up to the tasting room, but when you're in the tasting room, like some people, they just, you know, they, they want to try and go. Some people want to like talk, have a conversation. And it's almost like being a bartender, right? Like you, you still have to make sure that there's pace, like, like there is an end in, in sight. Uh, at the same time, you want to make sure their experience is just phenomenal. Like, you know, you want, you want to make sure that you're, you're bringing that stickiness uh, to, uh, um, to that customer. You want them to come back. You want them to really enjoy it. And, um, you know, whether it's like, you know, the small talk talking about, you know, where they're from, where they travel to those basics to kind of getting an understanding of that they've, they've definitely tasted before. Like you can tell like almost sometimes how someone holds their glass or how they, you know, how they're moving or like how they're, you know, how they're sniffing the wine. And you may bring up more details than that than you would for someone who's kind of like, I don't know much about this. And like, they already say like what they, you know, what they like, like I want sweet wines and you're like, okay, so let's, you know, maybe instead of, you know, these wines aren't sweet, but maybe I'll use the term fruit forward or something like that to kind of get them more interested in it, uh, uh, you know, up front, because I know it's not going to like sweet is like, by the way, sweet is the measurement of sugar, uh, which is a fun fact. If you want to test the sweetest wine, just use the tip of your tongue, nothing more. And the tip of your tongue will t- taste the sugar because that's where your receptors are. Uh, and, and you, you work, uh, um, and yeah, you just work with whether their their level of interest and understanding is and this translates to again what we do in zomtree so much because we offer so really quick spiel like we offer 11 different manufacturing technologies we have uh you know things traditional like cnc machining sheet metal fabrication uh, injection molding uh, urethane casting and we have seven types of 3d printing so the gamut of industrial 3d printing processes in both plastics and metal and every single one of them is unique and has its own strengths and trade-offs to it. And no matter if you're like the best engineer, the best CNC machine designer on the planet, you still may not know much about how to grow a part in metal 3D printing or, or what design attributes it is. So when you're listening, so when you're talking to this customer, you could, you could help gauge what they're interested in. And sometimes it's it's going between the conversation, reading between the lines. Um, when I'm talking with uh, with another engineer. Uh, and they're telling me, you know, you know, Hey, can I, how do I say, how can I say this? Uh, I had a you know, we had a question this morning, like, uh, um, can you cut this? And it was a very specific ceramic material, which is also very hard to see as he cut. And when it comes down to it, it's like, okay, I heard you say ceramic, but in my mind, I see high heat or electrical insulation and, or extreme, extremely rigid. And so now my questions are, why do you need ceramic? 
because they're looking for a onesie of something. It'll be super expensive to cut in this. But I'm like, I have this SLA resin that has ceramic infill to it. So if you're looking for, you know, highly stiff and possibly good insulation properties, maybe I could just grow this part for you. You'll, you'll get it in a week. Um, you know, if you're looking for high thermal, like I have, you know, if I can, I use a metal or doesn't need to be, you know, electrically insulative or insulative or, you know, can we substitute for something that is extremely stiff? And, and so we start working around because uh, sometimes when someone asks for something super exotic, like that sentence could all of a sudden be like a, like a $4,000 sentence. Well, maybe not 4000 but like a $1,200. Sure, sentence. yeah, yeah. And so sometimes you're like, How, can I actually make this $90 for you? Like, <laughs> help me help you and, and have this conversation. So it's all about kind of understanding. And, and again, with the experience I have is I'm usually the one talking to those customers about their projects. I've been the buyer before. I've been the person talking to other people about my projects, but my experience uh, whole, for mostly is working with uh, customers on the strengths and trade-offs because um, uh, sometimes it's timeline. I just need it fast. I need that shape fast. Sometimes it's true. You know, a lot of times it's full to spec. Like I need it like this, no exceptions and working with them and, uh, and figuring out the best route. Yeah. I, I think that's a big point. Uh, a mentor of mine, he, he, has drilled this into me that intent counts more than content when it comes to questions, right? People might ask you something like, like you said, uh, can you machine this out of ceramic? Well, do you really need to machine it out of ceramic or are there, is there a question behind that question? You know, I, I think that I need really high temperature and something really rigid. I think ceramic is the way to do that. So my question is going to be, can you machine this out of ceramic? But really my question is, can you give me something that's high heat, temperature and really rigid. Uh, so intent counts more than content. Um, I'm going to take a real quick break here and uh, just uh, remind the listeners that the Being an Engineer podcast is powered by Pipeline Design and Engineering, where we work with uh, medical and other device engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform a verification or validation testing on their devices and you can find us at testfixturedesign.com. We're speaking with Greg Paulson today, otherwise known as Greg of All Trades, as he <laughs> describes himself, <laughs> who is a director of application engineering at Zometry, X-O-M-E-T-R-Y. Um, so before I started researching Zometry for this interview, I I had this um, this this very uninformed understanding uh, of zometry as a kind of the same as protolabs. I'm sure you're familiar with protolabs, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. What uh, I think that I know the differences now, but I, I'm going to uh, let you explain this. How is zometry different than, than protolabs? Pipeline, my company, we've used both and we've had great experiences with both. And so in my mind, they were kind of just the same thing. But tell me, how is Zometry different than Protolabs? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, by the way, you know, Protolabs, uh, you know, they could be... Yeah, they could be considered a competitor. It's always like they're respectable. Like it's actually a, you know, it's a, um, it's a company. It's very interesting where they've, they focused on uh, essentially building a standardized set of tools. And under that standardized set of tools, they've created uh, a way to compute how to make or mold that 3D image based off their tool set. And that means that they can standardize and create you know quick quotes 
to run in Proto Labs large facility. So Proto Labs has a you know very large facility of five, like 500 machines, but it's it's their facility uh, that they're running in. And because it's standardized, it also means that certain things like you know um, tie tolerances, uh, surface finish callouts, uh, so higher spec work um, is sometimes out of the scope because the tool sets that they have 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 limitations to it. Um, Zometry, we took a very different approach uh, to that. So we um, are actually what's called a manufacturing as a service. So we are a platform uh, that is backed by folks like myself and more experienced people than me on you know machining, uh, machining, molding, sheet metal, you name it, uh, uh, where you can upload a 3D model. Uh, you can get, you will instantly get pricing. Uh, within seconds of your model being uploaded, pricing will show up and lead times for all our manufacturing technologies, including traditional stuff like machining. Uh, and then you could dive in. Uh, so if you're just looking to get something cut to shape to general standards and tolerances, you could click buy right right away. Um, if you are looking to get a highly specced out project, uh, you can go into essentially this little tab called modify part, open it up, change it to your you know seventy seventy five uh, aluminum alloy, add uh, you know add a surface finish to it. So let's get, you know, let's hard coat this now. Uh, let's add laser, uh, laser marking. Uh, let's go ahead, bag and tag this. I need a CMM inspection. I have 16 points that have tolerances of sub what sub one thousandths here. Um, I need to make sure that I have my COCs. I need a, uh, export control ITAR. I need DFAR material certs and I, I need 21. And you can do that all in about a minute and your price is right there and you press buy. And so it makes this very complex quoting process for spec components, especially like aerospace, defense, medical, commercial. Like the the engineers are putting tolerances on these parts on purpose, right? You know, there's there's a reason why things like GD and T and stuff exist because these parts aren't just shapes; they're things that actually need to be used in the real world. And uh, you're able to add add that information, get instant pricing, and uh, and move on with your day. You know, send that to your sourcing team, or you know, pay with your purchasing card, and uh, and get the, get those parts. And then on our fulfillment side, what's beautiful about us is our capabilities are just constantly evolving and expanding because we use a manufacturing partnered approach. So Zometry is connected with over three thousand manufacturing partners in the U.S. alone. Most of these are small business uh, shops like CNC machine shops, fabricators. Um, we have things like 3D printing service bureaus, um, um, tool and die uh, mold makers. And when you press order, we look at our vetted manufacturing network and we use actually um, AI and data science to pair the scope of work, what makes that your projects a success, and pair it with those who can make that most successful at the lowest cost. So you get price competitiveness without a bid war. We are pairing your work with those who love to do that type of work. And they're small businesses. We're paying small business manufacturers who are looking for better cash flow. They're looking to keep their spindles turning. And we're, we're elevating their businesses by giving them work on demand. So, yeah. that, uh, Sorry, I'm going to interrupt real no, quick great. here. That, that to me was a big difference because uh, Proto Labs, like you mentioned, they have everything in-house, right? They got you know, 500 machines or, or whatever it is. And Zometry, maybe you have some equipment of your own as well, but the majority of the, the, the equipment that 
Zometry, quote unquote, uses is owned by these smaller machine shops that are that are you know uh, peppered throughout the the, the U.S. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the, what's great about us is we have a big storefront, right? You you look for these services online, Zometry will pop up, and uh, and what we're a storefront for these businesses because they never may never have access to like NASA or any of these like large organizations like uh, um, uh, BMW, Bosch, Dell, GE. Uh, they've all they all are customers of Zometry, and actually they ended up being investors of Zometry because they really like this distributed manufacturing business model that we have, uh, and. Uh, even things like uh, you know we're we're actually just opening up something kind of new here. We have a two D drawing marketplace for if you ever worked with like legacy designs where there's no three D CAD, it's just you know that 1960s scan vellum. Uh, we now have a uh, we now have a service that is helping you directly connect with manufacturers that we've already vetted through our network. So like quality manufacturers to get uh, um, it's it's still RFQ, but it's on our site, so it's all consolidated where you can you can actually Get your quote or get your drawings reviewed. Uh, get feedback, quotes, and even order on our site with direct connections to these. So we're kind of the two D technical drawing marketplace. But we're trying to be this this place where, if it's technical manufacturing work, go to Zometry first. That that's really our goal. Is we want to be that that one stop shop. Area. Let me ask a question about tolerances because mm-hmm. uh, I, there might be a way to do this at Proto Labs. I, I can't remember off the top of my head now, but uh, at least with the standard workflow at Proto Labs, uh, you upload a step or a, a parasolid or whatever file, SolidWorks file, mm-hmm. and, and then you get a quote. But you can't attach tolerances to the 3D file. And there, there's no, at least with their standard workflow, no way that I, I know of to upload a drawing that has tolerances on it. At Zometry, is there a way to to specify, you know, I need plus or minus two thousandths of an inch on just these features, but the rest of it can be plus or minus five. Yeah. So we have our, so first of our manufacturing standards are kind of like, we're not making up these manufacturing standards. We have standards for every technology that are just universally accepted as like, you know, every every machine shop will understand distance tolerance. Generally, it's going to be plus or minus five thousandths. And then we have distance and angularity tolerances that that get a little bit uh, wider as the part gets longer, because that's what happens to metal and plastic as it gets longer. Sure. It, it tends to tends to want to flex on you, uh, uh, but they're universally accepted. So if you don't provide CAD, if you don't specify pro- tight tolerances, you're still we're still inspecting to that general manufacturing standard. But if you do need, uh, you know, tighter tolerances uh, in specific areas, um, within within that uh, auto coding dropdown, you're actually able to select a tight tolerance range, and then how many locations of that it'll automatically adjust uh, your quote. And there's another thing that's going to happen: you're going to see a little yellow box that says, "Give me a drawing, please." You know, if you had threads, ta- tapped holes, uh, if you need like a smoother surface finish, like a 32RA or something. It's gonna, it's gonna say like that's great, but we need to read a drawing now. Give me, a, give me that drawing. Nice. Uh, so, so it's gonna prompt you to, to upload a yeah. drawing. Yeah, Got and, it. and because these are you know real experienced machinists uh, that are looking at this. I mean, these are you know small business machine shops, and they do this professionally. They're gonna be reading those drawings and making sure that we we hit to those standards and specifications. So like, so we have a way of getting the ease of instant quoting from the three D file while at the same time allowing you to communicate what you actually need to do. Like this is, this is the scope, this is the real scope of the project. And you're able to specify enough on our quoting engine to get the price right uh, immediately. And by Very the way, cool. yeah, by the way, even if you don't like, if you don't see that material, um, we have entire engineering teams that are able to mainly quote. So say that's a, it's a, it's a more of an exotic material. 
um, for for your product that's not on our dropdown, which we have most most major materials are. But if you don't have it, you can select custom, type in what it is. So sometimes it's usually a, an alloy, like a specific alloy, like a T six five one one aluminum specifically, please. And uh, and then you press request uh, request manual review. It goes to our internal team. Our internal team will then take a look at it, uh, quote it out, get it back to you within a day. Uh, so you could still use our site. And we could do manual work, or we could always review quotes or look at competitive quotes if you need to. So we're we're still people, you know. We're, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I want to be clear that um, this there's no like partnership or anything between Zometry and Pipeline. Just a, a conversation here. <laughs> Proto Labs is great. Used them for a long time. One mm-hmm. thing that I found, uh, not me actually, a team member really likes about Zometry is he gets some swag every now and then. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's gotten some, like some coasters and a a notepad or something like that. And he will, he will fight you tooth and nail. If there's an option between Zometry and Protolabs, he wants the chance of getting that swag. Jason, if you're listening to this as a shout out (laughs) to you. (laughs) It's really funny. So, um, well, we've been we've been working remotely, uh, and I know the audience doesn't see this, but it's like an exercise bike behind me because I'm in in our in our basement right now, uh, where I where I work uh, for the last few months. And part of my job is educating on different materials and parts. So I'm, I'm ordering parts, and I'm getting them delivered to me. I'm getting my zometry boxes, and my wife jokes, "She's like, well, another zometry box." I'm like, "Yeah," but I had this stack of coasters uh, because, yeah, you get you get the coasters, and uh, I have a I have a daughter, a three year old daughter, and uh, she was uh, she was taking my ultimate frisbees. She's putting them in a shelf, putting the coasters on top, and telling me that she was making pizza. So, like, <laughs> so I have coasters all over the floor. You know, just there you go, geometry yeah. providing a source of enjoyment and playtime during COVID. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. What What are the three D printing technologies that Zometry offers? Is HP's uh, Multi Jet Fusion, the MJF technology, which is kind of newer on the scene, mm-hmm. right? Tell us a little bit about that, and how does that differ? What are the benefits over more traditional three uh, D printing technologies like SLS and FDM and SLA? Yeah, and just kind of note, as I mentioned, I've been working with SLS. Uh, for over a decade now, and I just I've really enjoyed it, or I still enjoy it. But one of the, one of the reasons why I like SLS so much is because and this is selective laser centering. Uh, so it is you're building parts in a powder bed. It's a heated powder bed. That powder is the plastic, uh, and uh, it almost feels like flour. Uh, and it will a laser will go in a, in the SLS process and fuse the cross section of your part. And then it also, that fusion is enough to hit one layer underneath to create that third dimension so it sticks to the what's underneath it. And then the next layer goes on top of uh, unfused powder and you fuse that cross section, you build and build and build. But the beauty of uh, laser centering like SLS is that you are, um, you do not need support structure. So if you if you imagine taking like a golf ball and sticking it in a flower, then letting go, it doesn't float, it doesn't sink, it kind of stays there. And the same thing happens with these processes where afterwards uh, you let the build area cool, but you have this giant block of powder and then you treasure hunt inside to find your three-dimensional parts. And because you're building so many parts in a three-dimensional space, so you're not just stacking them on a table, you're putting them like kind of floating them in air and you're keeping them, uh, you know, usually only a a couple millimeters spaced apart from each other. So you can really pack this up with parts. Uh, You as a customer only paying for that little space that your part's taking and it's very economical. 
So, uh, yeah. Quick side side mm-hmm. tangent uh, about uh, SLS. So, mm-hmm. I I agree. SLS SLS is terrific. It provides uh, parts that are are uh, strong um, and and flexible. Um, uh, and and the fact that it doesn't require supports is phenomenal. I, I hate supports, right? They always leave these little little puckered marks on the parts that mess up the surface finish. Um, the the thing I don't like about SLS is the surface finish. It's pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Do you do you know is that ever going to change? I mean, let's say five ten years in the future, are we going to have SLS parts that have a, a really nice clean surface finish? So you're you're actually really talking like negative one year in the, in the past, uh, but that that uh, so there are there are more post processing technologies that are out right now um, that uh, you could look at surface finishes that and they, what's very nice is uh, these surface finishes um, are they're vapor smooth, but if you're like if you know like desktop 3D printing with ABS, you could use acetone because it's not chemically compatible and you get that smoothness from this. So kind of think of the same concept, only something that can work with the amide based material. So like something like uh, polyamide, which is nylon, and uh, it does surface smoothing. Um, it's getting more popular. There's more, like, in fact, some of our manufacturing partners are actually running these machines now. And uh, I'm I'm hoping I hope that we add it to our platform sooner than later. Uh, but we're actually actually a lot of these people are running these machines are actually running with the MJF platform, which I'll segue to. Uh, but because you can get some surface smoothing, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be glossy. You can't be like I want it to be, you know, MT one one zero one zero like you could with inject uh, with injection molding. But you can smooth the surface, and also smoothing the surface in any process enhances the physical properties of that part by give, by creating a more even surface to mm. it. Um, but it's it's nice because even that these processes uh, can work with things like Ultim. And other high performance materials that are really difficult to tumble because they're high performance materials and really tough. Uh, so I'm excited about uh, about some of that. But yeah, so SLS uh, as as a person who's operating and running the machines, you know, I'm I'm usually like, okay, 13 seconds layer, 13, 13, 14 seconds layer, and and you're like, wow, that's fast, uh, especially for how much you're building. But when you think about it, every layer is you know 120 microns. And when you're talking about doing that over, you know, uh, I'm going to go from microns to inches, but like 60 inches or so, you're you're talking about, uh, or not 60 inches, like 30 inches. Um, you're talking uh, about a lot of layers, and that adds up to most builds being somewhere between like uh, about 25 to 30 hours, depending on density of pack uh, in, in SLS. So multi-jet fusion uh, for, through HP is what I would call innovation using the existing knowledge from, from selective laser centering. Cause we love this no support powder bed process uh, as, as operators, as well as users, because it is so forgiving for geometries. Like you were mentioning, you could do, you make the walls thick, it's a stiff part. You make the walls thin, it's flexible. You know, it's, it's a really, uh, really cool. And you don't need to worry about supports on the, on the complexity. So MJF though, is like, how can we, you know, increase throughput on this and make it easier as an operator to handle and hopefully reduce pricing that way. So instead of a laser hitting on this, um, it is, it's a inkjet bar that will go across and essentially put deposit black ink, uh, on the white powder. So the powders of these two processes are exactly the same. Like you hold them, you're like, it's the same stuff. And it'll ink the cross-section of those parts. And actually, there's two inks. There's one for the edge uh, that'll stop bleed. And then there's one for the, the fusion agent, which is going to essentially absorb heat. Because the second stage is an even heat bar going across that build chamber. 
and it's applying even heat to the uninked and the inked powder alike. But that black inked powder is absorbing enough heat to create the melt. And that melt is enough to fuse its neighbors and then fuse underneath, giving you that third dimension. So it's achieving what the laser's doing, but it's doing it all in one pass. So boom, boom. So all of a sudden, I'm like six, seven seconds later. And wow. again, again, That's again interesting. It, it, doesn't okay. sound, it doesn't sound like much, but all of a sudden, my full builds are now like 18 to 20 hours. And my throughput increases. And a lot of times on these industrial machines, the pricing of your parts ha- a lot, it has less to do with material, although it has something to do with material, but it has more to do with the overhead, the expense and overhead of these machines. So the machines are able to get a little bit more out. So on a one-to-one, if I built you one-to-one part, multi-jet fusion and SLS, and you blindfold and you receive them, you'd be holding them and be like, I literally can't tell the difference. Like, you know, if you took off the blindfold, you'll see one that if it's in the natural state of MJF, it's going to be gray. Um, SLS is naturally white, uh, but it's the MJF is gray because, like I said, it's that black binder and then it has a uh, edging compound. And that's where you kind of get this grayness from uh, to it. Well, it's called a detail compound. Um, but if you start ordering in bulk, uh, you may see differences in pricing where MJF sometimes will win out or very small parts it'll win out. So again, very similar processes on the <clears throat> on the outcome uh, from from what you're going to receive, uh, other than some like cosmetic like visual looks. Uh, but the throughput can make HP a little bit more competitive when you're looking at production and additive. Interesting. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. I didn't know, I didn't understand exactly what the process Mm -hmm. was. So it's basically the same material. I'm assuming material properties and things like that. That's effectively the same between the two. HP actually is boasting slightly improved, but again, if you're, I mean, if you're going in like ANSYS and simulating it, you're going to find some, uh, some differences, but for the layman, I will say snap tabs and clips tend to behave a little bit better, better in the HP product. Um, But like I said, SLS is still, just it's such a high throughput you know platform and so established uh there's there's a lot less question marks uh since hp is also introducing things like that um fusion agent and the detail agent into the print uh so it's it has a little bit of a learning curve to get to an acceptance standpoint especially when you're looking for things like like uh aerospace more commercialized manufacturing who have used who have used and utilized uh sls additive um, but yeah, those are those are so similar. I wanted to create clarification there. We have, like I said, we have seven seven different technologies, and they're all different. Like so, even things like photopolymer based, like we have stereolithography, and we have over a dozen different materials in that. Um, so here's the difference with that, though, is like SLS and multi fusion. Um, you're running nylons and uh, TPU materials and other materials in that, and they're real thermoplastics. Like you put heat to plastic, it melts thermoplastic. Um, with uh, with these things like SLA, uh, you may know that because the parts come out like with this much more finer surface detail to it, like a smoother surface detail, they're coming out of a liquid bath of resin that's cured with ultraviolet light. Uh, so um, because that's not plastic, right? Plastic, like a thermoplastic, it's actually curing and they're engineered to behave like plastic. So if you go on Zometry site, you'll see stuff like polypropylene-like, ABS-like, polycarbonate-like, and then we have the ceramic field, which is, uh, our head application engineer, Tommy, always says, don't think plastic, think toilet bowl when you're talking about flex with uh, with the ceramic field. Like, <laughs> if you try to flex it, you will break it. Uh, uh-huh. but, but the... Um, 
but they're engineered materials, right? They're engineered to like dash like, like ABS like material. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So what, what can we look forward to in the future from Zometry? What, what are the innovations that we're going to see in the next, you know, few years? Well, I, I think this whole marketplace manufacturing aspect uh, and being kind of a central point is, is a really big deal uh, because this problem of procurement just exists where uh, a lot of times you as a buyer don't know where to go to get what. And you may also have supplier overload where you have so many suppliers on your on your list that uh, you – like say you say you had two thousand suppliers on your list, and you do like one change in your internal organization, and also you need everybody to resign an NDA or something. You have two thousand NDAs to sign. So, Zometry helps solve this supplier consolidation by being Zometry, this one single storefront, uh, and also consolidates the manufacturing technology. So, I think for you know, from a simple standpoint, we're going to be continuing to add and create better intuition around new manufacturing technologies uh, on our site. I think there's a lot of opportunities for small businesses uh, uh, with Sometry, uh with the different branches that we have as uh, as we're growing, especially um, for small business manufacturers to be part of the Zometry's network, um, whether it is directly interacting with customers uh, through our marketplaces like that 2D technical drawing marketplace or a finishing network, or working with that more catered white glove service that are, is our core business, which is that instant quoting site. Um, there's lots of opportunities for them to get work on demand and essentially get faster pay and usually some better rates for things like materials and other supplies. Cause we're, we, by us representing all these, all of a sudden we become, become a, a giant manufacturer rep that we can leverage for better deals for our ma- manufacturers. So I think the flywheel has really started to spin for Zometry in the last couple of years. And as we continue to grow, we're going to be looking at how can we, you know, enhance uh, our suppliers uh, so that those manufacturers and just make it, dirt simple to be to get custom parts made uh through you know through our site so it's 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 going to be those those things and um i don't know if you do, if you have european listeners or not but we also we have zometry europe which has been around for a year now uh and so we we have manufactured 18 countries in the eu and uh zometry europe itself is based in germany uh so there's there's expansion there's you know we're going global Impressive, impressive. I, I know that uh, it's been in the fa- past few years that Zometry has kind of come onto my radar. So for sure, you guys are doing something right. Uh, well, we should probably um, let you get back to your day here. But before we go, uh, would you like to share any contact information? If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, well, I, I'm Greg Paulson, uh, P-A-U-L-S-E-N. I'm always happy to connect on LinkedIn. And uh, as you could tell, Aaron, I, I love talking shop. So uh, if you ever want to talk technical details, uh, you know, or, or go over materials, or new, I, I love keeping my eye on new additive processes, uh, please uh, reach out. In regards to Zometry, X-O-M-E-T-R-Y.com uh, is the... Uh, um, is the best place to go. And that, that will take you to all our services and site. Um, I actually do a lot of our FAQ and resources and also a lot of uh, fun videos, including some engineering challenges videos. So if you ever want to see me like throw 3D prints against the wall, uh, go, <laughs> go and check out our video section. Uh, but uh, 
you know, we have a lot of educational content. So even if you're not quoting, there's stuff on the site that can be very useful to learn more about different different processes, different technologies, um, whether it's 3D printing or something traditional like molding. Uh, we we want to enhance uh, that. Like we want to make engineers better. Like I want better drawings. I, it makes me a better manufacturer for you. So uh, definitely check that out. Great. All right. Well, Greg, thank you so much for taking some time out. I know you're a busy man. Really appreciate you sharing some of your knowledge with uh, me and the podcast listeners. Thank you so much. It's uh, happy to be here. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.